Before we begin, I have a bit of housekeeping. It's a new year, and I finished my midwinter break. You can expect new episodes have already gone on the 1st and 15th of each month. And if you prefer your episodes ad-free, consider supporting the show on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash already gone for early ad-free access to episodes. I also release bonus content on Patreon that you won't find anywhere else. As for upcoming episodes, I have a couple of lesser-known unsolved murders from Michigan and beyond that need your attention. And, for some reason, I've been drawn to family annihilator cases, so look for a couple of those in the weeks ahead. You can follow the show on Twitter, at AlreadyGonePod, and you can find me, I'm Nina Instead, on Instagram. But that's mainly cat pictures and assorted cocktails. At my house, we like a good mixed drink so you'll see a bit of what we've created over there. We have a Facebook group, Michigan True Crime Discussion, and, of course, if you have an interest in missing persons, I encourage you to join the Missing in Michigan group on Facebook. I spend a lot of time there working with families and law enforcement on missing persons cases. I think that covers everything, so let's get on with the story. Lakeville is a little town in north-central Indiana. It's about 10 miles south of South Bend, and maybe 20 miles from the Indiana-Michigan state line. It's the sort of quiet place where not much happens. Except, something did happen there. One of the most terrible crimes seen in years. Come with me to a sunny Sunday morning in 1989, when a pastor leaves his flock waiting, and a horrific crime is uncovered in an unlikely place. The members of the Olive Branch United Brethren Church, located just outside of Lakeville, Indiana, they were patient, but something must be amiss for their pastor, 38-year-old Reverend Robert Pelly, to be this late for Sunday service. It was also odd that his wife, 32-year-old Dawn Pelly, was not there. At first, they thought that maybe the reverend was playing a prank. He was known for his sense of humor. The previous Sunday, he sat in the front pew reading a newspaper while wearing a t-shirt before services began. His ultimate message that week was for the congregation to be sitting in the pews quietly so service could start on time. But on April 30th, 1989, the more time passed, the more they worried. Church Administrative Board member David Hathaway felt that something was wrong and he decided to walk across the church parking lot to the parsonage where the family lived to check on them. Other church members followed, including Will Tisdale, a church elder. Will tried to peek in the windows, but the shades were drawn, something that was uncharacteristic of the family. When David's knocks went unanswered, he and the other church members debated whether they should break into the home. They decided it was better to ask forgiveness than permission and entered the house using a key that was hidden outside. What they found in the house was something from a nightmare. Robert was lying on the floor in the hallway while his wife and two small daughters were in the basement family room. One of the girls was in the arms of her mother. All four of them had been shot at close range. Will later described the scene he found in the basement. The kids was at the foot of the stairway, just a little ways down the stairway, and and I didn't go all the way down. I went about two of three steps, and that was enough for me. It was a bloody mess. Police believed that Robert was shot first, and then a frightened Dawn grabbed the two children and ran downstairs to hide. 
the murderer must have followed them to the basement. Autopsy would show that all the members of the family were either shot by a 12- or 16-gauge shotgun at close range to the face and head. The murders took place sometime on Saturday, April 29th. Police were called to the scene and confirmed the dead were Robert and Dawn, as well as Dawn's two daughters from a previous marriage, 8-year-old Janelle and 6-year-old Jolene. Three of the family's children were not at home. 17-year-old Jeff and 14-year-old Jacqueline. They were Robert's children from the previous marriage. There was also 9-year-old Jessica, Dawn's oldest daughter. Robert and Dawn were both widowed when they began dating. They met at a church picnic and were married two months later. After their marriage in 1985, the two families moved in together. First, they live in Fort Myers, Florida. But they moved to Lakeville, Indiana, about two and a half years before the murder. Robert was a very strict parent. He believed that his children and stepchildren should be perfectly behaved, especially during his church services. There was a bit of resentment from Robert's children towards Dawn's children, as they felt Dawn was not as strict with them as she should be. This caused some conflict in the family, but otherwise, it looked like the blended family got along. With the bodies discovered, police gathered the three surviving children and they were informed of the murders. They found Jeff, the oldest, at Great America Theme Park with a bunch of his friends. He was enjoying post-prom celebrations and had been away from home the night of the killings. His biological sister, Jacqueline, called Jackie by her family. Jackie was away at a local college attending church camp. And Jessica, Dawn's oldest child, She'd attended a sleepover at her friend's house. In a 2007 article, Jessica recalled the moment she came home to police everywhere outside of her home. At that age, the first thing I thought was that my dog had died. You know, something happened to my dog. You don't think anything greater than that when you're that young. Police had to break the news to the children that their family was gone. Jessica recalled, They just said they were gone. They didn't go into details. You know, obviously, my first reaction was to cry, and I cried for days. Early in the investigation, it was clear to police that there was nothing missing or stolen from the crime scene, except for a shotgun that Robert had hanging on the wall. The police were unable to locate the shotgun and determined that it was the probable murder weapon. Little Jessica was the one who confirmed to the police that the shotgun was missing. The parsonage, where the family lived, showed no sign of a struggle and no evidence of forced entry. Police combed the surrounding area for the shotgun, but the search was unsuccessful. They brought in a canine team as well as the sheriff's horse posse. They even brought in divers to search nearby ponds and swamps but the gun never turned up, leaving investigators without a key piece of evidence. It didn't take long for police to focus their investigation on Jeff. Word on the street was that Jeff was not allowed to go to prom that night. Jeff and his father had a large argument about Jeff's participation in the prom, and Robert was allowing Jeff to attend, but he forbade his son from driving to prom or participating in any after-prom activities. It was quite a surprise to Darla, Jeff's girlfriend at the time, when Jeff showed up to her house in his car not wearing his tuxedo. Jeff did change into his tuxedo in time for pictures, and then the couple headed off to the dance.
When questioned by Darla about why Jeff was allowed to drive after all, Jeff said his father had a change of heart and allowed him to go to the prom with no restrictions. When police questioned Jeff, he repeated the story about his father's change of heart. And this confused investigators because they had learned from other witnesses that Robert was not the kind of man to change his mind about a punishment. Will Tisdale, you remember him, he's one of the men who found the bodies. He told police that he talked to Robert about Jeff's punishment, and Will remembers Robert being adamant about seeing the punishment through. According to Will, Robert even took parts from the engine of Jeff's car so that it wouldn't run. Police now had a motive, but there was no physical evidence linking Jeff to the murders. Jeff was last seen at 4 p.m. when a neighbor spotted him outside washing his car. Police were able to narrow down a timeline when the family was last seen alive and when someone tried to contact them and got no response. This allowed for a window of about 45 minutes. So the question is, could Jeff have killed his family, cleaned up, and headed over to his girlfriend's house to get ready for prom in that length of time? Prosecutors felt the timeline was too tight and the physical evidence was lacking. They weren't ready to charge Jeff with a crime. While other leads were run down and various tips were pursued, it was not long before the case went cold. The murdered members of the Pelly family were laid to rest on a warm, sunny May afternoon. The church was standing room only. The memorial service reflected on a loving family that had been part of their community for two and a half years. Because of their fervent worship of Jesus and their devout faith, the congregation knew the family was in a better place. The three surviving children attended the funeral. Jeff was photographed being comforted by friends outside of the church. Jamie Collins, Jessica's cousin, she remembered the other two Pelly children at the funeral. She would later say, I remember seeing Jackie visibly, emotionally upset and shaken. Jeff? He was just flat and distant. It was like he was there, but he wasn't there. After the tragedy, Jessica moved in with her grandfather, Ed Hayes, in Eaton Rapids, Michigan. Jeff and Jackie stayed with friends in the Lakeville area. Jessica's life had turned upside down. No one kept her in the loop about the crime, so she grew up thinking that this was a murder-suicide, with her stepfather, Robert, being the perpetrator. While police had looked at this possibility, it was immediately dismissed due to Robert's injuries and the fact that he had two gunshot wounds. But no one told this to Jessica. No one explained it to this little girl. So, until adulthood, she believed that Robert killed her family and then himself. In the months and years after the murders, Jessica's relationship with her stepbrother and stepsister fell apart. Since Jessica was in Michigan and Jeff and Jackie were back in Indiana, they just couldn't keep that family connection. And Jessica had a hard time in Michigan. She ended up running away from her grandfather's home and was placed in foster care. At the tender age of 13, Jessica decided to take control of her life and push down all the negative feelings she had about her past. All of her anger, her fear, and grief, she hid them deep inside of herself. At age 15, about six years after the murders, someone from her past returned to her life. Her stepbrother, Jeff, 
He had moved back to Florida where he lived as a child and was now married with his own home. He called Jessica and invited her to come visit. While she was happy to hear from her stepbrother, Jessica later recalled a strange exchange between them in a 2020 article. The first thing he asked me was, who do you think did it? So I looked at him and said, I think your dad did it. And it was dropped. At age 18, Jessica used some of her inheritance money to buy herself a home, the first home she'd had since she was nine years old. She would then meet a man, and she fell in love. The couple had two children. Life was almost perfect. Jessica still struggled emotionally with the loss of her family. She didn't even share the tragic story of her mother, sisters, and stepfather with her own children. She lived her life the best she could, and it was mostly a happy one. But all of that changed in 2002 when detectives knocked on her door. They told Jessica, who now goes by Jessie, that they were reopening the case and trying to solve the 13-year-old murder. When they asked who she thought committed the murder, she told them that she thought it was her stepfather. The detectives kindly but firmly explained that it was not possible for Robert to have murdered his wife and her two daughters before killing himself. It was in that moment that Jessie's mind went to her stepbrother as a possible suspect. The detectives told her they thought it was Jeff, and then they went through all the evidence with her. Jessie was quickly won over. She told detectives things about Jeff that they were not privy to. Jessie said, Jeff liked to do things that just scared me. He was so quick to getting angry, and he would use his fists. He would fight. What Jessie shared with them painted a clearer picture of their suspect and solidified the detectives' feelings about Jeff and his involvement. But the case against Jeff was still thin at best. Besides his odd behavior and propensity for violence, there was a tight timeline that only Jeff's involvement in the murder could satisfy. There was no forensic evidence, no weapon, and no eyewitnesses. It would take time, more than a decade, and a new prosecutor to decide that there was enough evidence against Jeff to bring charges. So, in 2002, 31-year-old Jeff Pelly was arrested and charged with four counts of murder. He was picked up at the Los Angeles airport. Jeff, who was employed by IBM, was returning from a business trip when customs agents got a hit on his passport and he was taken into custody. This was not the first time that Jeff had been in legal trouble. In July of 1994, he was convicted of wire fraud after taking $48,000 from a trust fund. For this, he was sentenced to six months of in-home detention. This trust was set up by his late father and stepmother so that when Jeff was 23, or after he graduated college, he would receive $24,000. Then he would get the balance of the money when he turned 26. The trust was managed by his step-grandfather, Ed Hayes. When Jeff was 19 years old, he reached out to Ed and told Ed that he had cancer. Jeff explained that his medical bills went over $20,000, and he presented Ed with a falsified check for $20,359.93. Jeff also set up another telephone line in his home, and he had Ed call it, letting him think it was the hospital, and that Ed was calling to verify what Jeff's bills really were. But the scheme didn't work. Jeff was caught and convicted of wire fraud. 
In December 1993, Jeff married Kimberly Ann Singletary. They had two children together, and in 1997, the couple divorced. In 1999, the couple remarried and were still married when Jeff was arrested. Jeff's grandparents were informed of the arrest, and they were in shock. They stood behind Jeff and accused the police of having tunnel vision. They felt that investigators had been focused on Jeff since the beginning, and that they never entertained any other possibilities. Newspapers at the time released a statement that Jeff supposedly told police back in 1989. When police questioned him, he allegedly asked if he would get the electric chair if he talked to them. This was the closest to a confession the police ever pulled out of Jeff Pelley. Newspaper reports made it clear that Jeff had long been a suspect. And they did this because the St. Joseph County Prosecutor Chris Toth and Chief Deputy Prosecutor Ellen Corsella, they released information to the public that was previously undisclosed, including Jeff's damning statement about the electric chair. They also made it clear, however, that no new evidence had been gathered since 1989. The Affidavit of Probable Cause written and filed by Corsella explains what they believed happened on April 29, 1989. That Jeff had lied about where he was on the night of the murder. When confronted about the lies, that's when he made his statement about getting the electric chair if he talked. The affidavit stated, when the investigator replied that it might make a difference whether or not Jeff talked, but that Jeff would have to let the investigator know what those things were, the defendant slumped in his chair with his hands down covering his face. The affidavit went on to mention several witnesses who knew that Jeff was upset about his father grounding him and forbidding him from going to any of the after-prom activities. Jeff was humiliated at the prospect of his father driving him and his date to the prom. One of Jeff's friends told investigators that Jeff wanted to take Darla to the prom more than anything else at the time of these events. During the week of prom, Jeff told Darla that he would be attending all the after-prom events, but not to say anything to his father about it. This established motive and Jeff's premeditation of the murders. There were also witnesses who said both parents had expressed a fear of Jeff. Dawn told a friend that she was, quote, really afraid of Jeff. Robert told a friend that he was, quote, half scared of what he might do. This established that Jeff was truly capable of committing the horrific crime that he was suspected of. The affidavit, it also established a timeline. In the early evening hours of the day of the murders, a family friend, Kim Oldenburg, she stopped by the Pelly house to show off her dress. Robert and Dawn were going to stop by another person's house, Crystal Easterday, at 5.30 p.m. to see her dress. Kim left the Pelly house at 4.45 p.m., and the Pellys never went to Crystal's house to see her dress. That solidifies the timeline to a mere 45 minutes when the crime could have occurred, because it was at 6 p.m. that Jeff called Darla from a payphone at a gas station to say he was running late. The evidence shows that the murder was premeditated. Plainly, even as late as early afternoon on Saturday, Robert Pelly conveyed that he did not intend to permit his son to go to any prom event other than the dance. And investigators surmised the following, that Jeff got his father's shotgun and shot him first in the upper chest, knocking him down. He then shot his father in the face, blowing off a portion of his head. 
Then Jeff turned his attention to his stepmother and stepsisters, chasing them into the basement, firing a shot from the top of the stairs toward the bottom. He then went downstairs and shot his stepmother Dawn in the head. He would then go on to shoot eight-year-old Janelle and six-year-old Jolene, who were in the basement with their mother. Investigators noted that Jolene was crouched behind her mother's body when she was shot in the head at close range. They noted that portions of Jolene's right hand were shot off, indicating that she raised her hand to her face in self-defense. The document stated, quote, The three bodies were huddled together with one daughter on each side of their mother, as if they had taken cover together from the shooter. The document goes on to presume that Jeff went upstairs to take off his blood-covered clothing and put them in the washing machine. In his haste, he forgot to take the money out of his pockets. Then he took a shower, put on different clothes, and left the house, carrying the tuxedo he would wear to prom. Police found traces of blood in the bathtub and on the bathroom floor. Jeff would go to another friend's house to change into his tuxedo. While at dinner at the East Bank Emporium in South Bend prior to prom, Jeff asked Crystal Easterday if his parents stopped by to see her dress, and she told him no. After the dance, Jeff and Darla went bowling. Then they went to a friend's house, and finally they left for Great America Amusement Park at 6.30 a.m. Around noon, Jeff would tell Darla that he had a bad feeling, that something happened at home to his family. Police would later collect both Jeff and Darla at Great America to tell them about the murders. Beth Platts, one of Jeff's friends that attended prom with him, recalled that when her and her boyfriend left Great America, Jeff and Darla were still at the park. Beth stated, the cops were waiting by his car, waiting for him to come out, and we thought to ourselves, okay, what happened now? Because Jeff had been in trouble before. Beth went on to say that after Jeff announced he was going to prom, everyone was shocked and confused because he'd been in trouble and his father said he couldn't go. It turned out he was going, and then he showed up late to dinner. Beth was sure to comment on how nothing seemed amiss with Jeff that night, which is something Darla said as well. Jeff seemed like his usual self during the prom. Something really damning was said about Jeff by one of his friends, Carol Jensen. Carol was also the choir leader at Olive Branch Church of the Brethren. She said, We knew there was friction between the father and the son, but you can't even imagine. I knew he hated his father. He told everybody, I hate my dad. He was very resentful. I knew there was jealousy with the second marriage and that his father paid attention to the girls. She also talked about her own suspicions regarding Jeff's involvement. My very first thought was that he couldn't have done it. Over time then, I started to think, my golly, he probably did. Jeff's demeanor at the funeral was also problematic for Carol. There was Jeff, sitting there with his big eyes. She thought it had to be shock. The rest of the family was so torn up and he just sat there staring. I'll never forget those eyes. Beth Platt said something similar about Jeff's behavior. He was just very calm and never showed any emotion during the whole funeral. And that shocked a lot of people. People questioned it at the time. Corsella, the prosecutor, was honest and called the prosecution of Jeff Pelly a classic circumstantial case. It would require them to eliminate all possible scenarios except for the one where Jeff killed his family. Prosecutor Toth would say, 
Very often, circumstantial evidence makes your best case, and the two were confident that they would win the trial. After being taken into custody in California, Jeff didn't fight extradition back to Indiana. His attorney, Alan Baum, he took this opportunity to say that Jeff absolutely denies that he killed his father, stepmother, and two stepsisters. Baum defended his client, saying he appeared in court, waived extradition, and we intend to get him back to South Bend as early as possible. Baum practiced law with the Chase Law Group in suburban Los Angeles, and he told newspapers at the time that he was hoping for a quick extradition, even though St. Joseph County said it would be some time in the next 10 days that they would take custody of Jeff. Baum also told the press that he would travel to Indiana to represent Jeff at his initial hearing. And while he wasn't familiar with the evidence, he hoped to get the case thrown out based on Fifth and Sixth Amendment violations, especially the one that guarantees a speedy trial. If there's no new evidence, I'm hoping the court will recognize that this case has been so profoundly affected by the delay. Some judge is going to be given the opportunity to rule on a motion to dismiss in violation of the right to a fair and speedy trial. You see, back in 1966, a federal ruling on the Sixth Amendment defined its intent to minimize anxiety and concern accompanying public accusation and to limit the possibility that long delay will impair the ability of the accused to defend himself. Jeffrey's attorney was arguing that it was impossible for him to do his own investigation because of the length of time that had passed. Finding witnesses, interviewing witnesses, finding documentary evidence, all the types of things a defense would want to look into, a lot of this is lost to us. On Tuesday, August 20th, 2002, Jeff Pelly returned to Indiana via bus. He was picked up at 9.30 p.m. South Bend time from the L.A. Men's Central Jail and traveled via Transcorps Bus, a private company that moves prisoners by buses all over the country. He arrived at the St. Joseph County Jail that Sunday shortly before 2 p.m. When he first appeared in court, Jeff's lawyer said he would not press for a change in venue. He also announced that public defender Jim Corporal will be assisting in the case. Jeff was due back in court on September 20th so that a possible bond could be set for him to post bail. Baum argued that the case against his client was weak and he should be allowed to post bail and be released. He also said he completely believes in his client's innocence. All of that said, Jeff lost his plea for bond. There was a minor hiccup for the prosecution. Chris Toth, the prosecutor who brought charges against Jeff, he was not reelected. Instead, he was replaced by Michael Dvorak and his team. Dvorak only had a month to prepare for the trial. And there were other issues. Chief Deputy Prosecutor Corsella and Alan Baum said they discovered a conflict of interest with Dvorak's incoming team and the Pelly case. You see, Jeff met with Michael Dvorak 13 years earlier, when Dvorak was working as a defense attorney. At the time, Jeff was looking for a lawyer and talked to several of them. Dvorak swore to uphold the integrity of the case and prosecute it successfully. Baum claimed that one of Jeff's family members may have contacted Ken Cotter's office after Jeff's arrest. Cotter was announced to be one of Dvorak's chief prosecutors. Both Corsella and Baum argued that ethical issues may force the case to be tried outside of the prosecutor's office. But Baum was adamant about the trial moving forward as quickly as possible so that his client's Sixth Amendment rights were not violated. 
Dvorak said that his office would be ready to proceed when the time came, but if there was a delay, it would only be because all the evidence was not ready, a situation the prosecutor's office knew could happen when they filed charges. And not everyone was happy about Jeff being charged. In fact, when he was charged, it opened wounds in the community. On January 5th, 2003, a candlelight vigil was held at the Olive Branch United Brethren Church. Fifty people attended. Friends and family of the Pellies spoke about how much they missed the family. The arrest of Jeff caused rifts in both the Pelly family and Dawn's side of the family. Some of them believed that Jeff is guilty, while others felt just as strongly that he was innocent. On January 8, 2003, Jeff's lawyers petitioned St. Joseph Superior Court Judge Roland W. Chambly Jr. for a special prosecutor to try the case. You see, they thought there were ethical issues with Prosecutor Dvorak. Because Jeff sought to be possibly represented by Dvorak more than a decade earlier when he was a defense attorney, it was thought that Dvorak could use some of the information he got from Jeff against him at trial. But at the time of the murders, Jeff did not hire Dvorak nor any other lawyer, and Dvorak had had no further contact with Jeff after this one meeting. Because of this, he argued, there was no prejudice that could interfere with his duties as prosecutor. Judge Chambly agreed and ruled that Prosecutor Dvorak could try the case. The trial was now set to begin February 3rd. But the February date was optimistic. The trial was plagued with delays. On June 10th, 2006, Jeff appeared before Judge Chambly at a pretrial hearing. And Jeff is now represented by a new attorney, Andre Gamage. This hearing was scheduled one month before his long-awaited trial. During the hearing, Judge Chambly reinforced his ruling denying a defense motion to have an appeals court review the judge's rejection of motions to dismiss the trial. The defense argued the case should be dismissed because delays in the trial were prejudicial to Jeff and violated his rights. Jeff's defense team was not deterred by the ruling and instead petitioned to ask the Indiana Supreme Court to rule on whether Jeff's rights were violated. The Supreme Court decided not to answer the petition and the trial moved forward, now scheduled to begin on July 10th. 9.30 a.m. July 10th, the trial begins. A jury is chosen from a pool of 60, and the trial would last six days with 40 witnesses called to the stand. The jury would find Jeff Pelly guilty of the murders of his father, stepmother, and two stepsisters. It took two and a half days and three votes for the jury to come to a unanimous decision of his guilt. He was sentenced to 40 years per murder for a total of 160 years. Jeff and his defense team immediately began the process of appeals, one of which was successful. Jeff's conviction was temporarily set aside by a court of appeals, but he remained in custody until 2009 when the Indiana Supreme Court upheld Jeff's conviction. Robert Jeffrey Pelly currently resides in the Indiana State Prison. Jeff's biological sister, Jackie, she still believes in her brother's innocence and urges anyone with information that could exonerate him to come forward. You can visit www.justiceforjeff.org to contact her. Jeff's stepsister, Jessie, she felt a sense of justice when she heard the guilty verdict. But her life was not perfect afterward. She had a suicide attempt and was diagnosed with Dissociative Identity Disorder, or DID. 
formerly known as multiple personality disorder. Jessie says that her DID is a direct effect from her trying to push down her emotions about the death of her mothers and sisters. In doing so, she created another personality, Jessica. And Jessica is a sad, lonely, angry little girl. Jessie is on the road to recovery, and she wrote a book, I Am Jessica, about her experiences. The book was published on April 29, 2019, on the 30th anniversary of the murders. This episode was researched and written with the support of the lovely and talented Brittany Martinez. Audio production provided by Gray Multimedia. I'm Nina Instead, host of the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe.